Hello and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this podcast helpful. Nice to have you with us, listeners. And today, all three of us are actually back in our hot seats, AANA, Alex, Amy and Alison. And today is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Obviously, by the time you're listening to this, listener, it won't be that day. But today just happens to be that day when we're recording. Any thoughts about that, you two? I, on our Twitter account... I added some stats from the UN about today and also added Elaine Storkey's previous podcast and Natalie Collins's podcast as well. So if listeners, I need to viewers, and listeners want to, uh, you know, go back and listen to some old episodes and they'll be worth listening to in terms of domestic violence and the patriarchal world, plug for their previous podcasts. Brilliant. Thanks, Amy. It'd be weird, wouldn't it, if we had viewers? Could you imagine? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm just thinking about the editing of podcast and video. <laughs> no thanks. You don't need to see me in my semi pajamas with no makeup on. <laughs> Anything else we want to talk about before we get into the interview? Today, of the International Day of Violence Against Women. So, the statistics by the UN suggests that one in three women experience abuse in the world and it's interesting to note that Valerie's statistics of older people getting divorced the petitions of divorce by women two-thirds of those petitions are done due to abuse or the the, the accusation or claim of abuse mm. so there's obviously a massive issue in terms of abuse and violence in the terms of not just outside of the church but also inside the church I just find that quite interesting. So it's, it's just very relevant, I think, the podcast that we've done and the interview we've done in terms of today. Brilliant. So it's Valerie Hobbs. Let's have a listen then, shall we? Valerie, it's lovely to have you join us on the podcast today. Welcome. Can we start by telling us briefly about yourself so that we understand who you are and a little bit about your your Christian journey, how it's been shaped? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm really pleased to be here. I love love talking with other women in the faith, especially women who are interested in empowerment. I have a pretty checkered past, uh, perhaps unusual in some ways. I'll try to give you the quick version. (laughs) The important things to say, I guess, are that I started my life in a dominionist cult in the wilderness of Alaska. Oh, wow. And yeah. (laughs) Probably going to podcast on that, couldn't you? (laughs) Wow. I could, yeah. We have to invite you back. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's quite a story. But after that, I grew up right smack in the center of the Christian Reconstructionist movement in the United States. So I really saw the the early beginnings of the new Christian right and the way that was developing. I That was my life. I, I saw that firsthand. As a result, I moved through multiple of these abusive religious and church environments. That was my bread and butter. That was my childhood. As part of that, I attended a fundamentalist Christian school growing up where corporate discipline was the order mm-hmm. of the day and other, other kinds of abuse. After that, I went to a Christian university, which was part of 
of the Presbyterian Church in America, which is slightly more mainstream, but still has influences within within the Christian right. Largely as a result of that very kind of turmoil of my past, quite some time, I stepped back from the church. I stopped reading the Bible. I found it very difficult to engage. I heard, when I, when I opened the text, I heard the voices of men that had harmed me. So I felt that the church was very unwelcoming. I love the title of your podcast, this kind of recovering God. That's the story of my life. I married the son of a pastor. I mean, he's the love of my life. Together, we moved to the United Kingdom in no small part to try to find Christians who are doing things differently. And that distance was really important for me. It helped me to get perspective and to kind of make sense of what had happened to me and, and where I'd come from. You know, then again, Christians here have their own set of issues mm-hmm. and their own kind of set of power grabbing, which I've had to get to grips with over the years. And about a year ago, we left our church of 16 years. We've been here 17 years now. That was very difficult, particularly since, you know, the global pandemic came along. But even then, you know, that kind of stepping back from church again, I found that in the midst of all this noise, you know, the kind of the conquering battle cry of dominion seekers, all the culture warriors of the Christian right, all those people looking for God on the world stages. God has always been about meeting me in the quiet. And that is the testimony of my life, that God has been faithful to me in ways I I find it really hard to put into words in a, in a kind of brief summary. I know the God of love and in and amongst all these kind of these kind of radical movements, these extremist movements, God has held me close to himself. And that's something that I feel is so firm at, at the foundation that I have there is is very different from the kind of God that I heard about as a child. So you mentioned reconstructionism and dominionism, just as a brief thing for our listeners. Could you just explain what that actually is or entails? Yeah, so a lot of scholars don't like to use the word dominionist. I'm very happy using it. I think it's, a, it's an important word because it encompasses a wide range of Christian fundamentalist extremists who share the same kind of ambition to set up a Christian theocracy. They see, they have a vision of the world as Christians in power, Christians a Christian society, a Christian culture. Now they differ in terms for that. Now, some of them are quite explicit about the violence that they're okay with using to gain that political power. We saw that in January in Washington, D.C., you know, there were people who were very willing to use violence to claim what they believe is theirs. There are other people who have different means. You know, they sort of think, oh, it's a grassroots movement, will position people in political positions, sort of like almost in a secretive way or kind of will gradually influence people. So we have this idea of influencers and, but it's, it's a diverse set of movements, but it, the kind of movement that I was part of the Christian reconstructionist is perhaps one of the most extremists in that category in that they advocate for capital punishment, for adultery for homosexuality. They're, they're quite explicit. They, what they want is a return to old Testament law, the judicial law. So that was the kind of the groups that I moved in as a child shaped my, my relationship relationship with God and my lack of relationship with the God in quotes that I met as a child. And I've seen that here since I've come here, sadly, you know, I I expected to see something different and I have seen some, some difference. There are still, I think, movements within the United Kingdom that are have those same interests. Yeah. That's interesting. I've, I've bumped into that a little bit and there's something called seven mandates, seven, seven mountains. Yeah. Yeah. And that's quite big in neo-charismatic circles and that's over here. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the Pentecostal, there's a kind of new 
apostolic movement. Yeah, within within Pentecostalism, within charismatic movement, these seven mountains, they're like the kind of seven, seven aspects of culture that they have ambitions, they have their sights on, that they want to position certain people in to take take control. So would you call yourself a Christian feminist then? Yeah, I love that question. Um, no, I do not. And I'm quite adamant about that, really. I'm often called a feminist, and I rather enjoy that, particularly when it's from certain Christian circles. I've been part of various groups over the years that identify as feminist and been very happy to do so. I love the feminist movement. And by that, I mean, I'm profoundly grateful for it, and I'm eager to participate in many of its forms. Something that's often lost on people is that feminism is a diverse movement. It has a lot of different expressions. It has a different, there are a lot of debates within feminism, different kind of strands. The world has been unsettled and transformed in many positive ways because of feminism. So I read feminist work. I participate in it. It's quite personal for me because as long as I can remember, I've been struggling against male dominance and male supremacy. I see this as an attack on the image of God in all human beings. And I'm very pro-woman. I think everywhere men are, women should be. That's something I affirm. But also as a linguist, as an academic, I take naming very seriously. It's my job to be critical of movements. And I know, for example, that marginalized members of society, particularly lower income groups, particularly women of color, they support the principle behind feminism, but aren't as keen on the word. So I have misgivings about the extent to which feminism has sidelined marginalized women. And I have reservations about the extent to which it's built upon a network of privilege. Mm -hmm. It's a tricky one. It's something that I often revisit and think to myself about, because as I say, I'm I'm really, my work is very pro-woman. While feminism is one set of valuable perspectives, I'm not keen to pigeonhole myself. Now that makes sense. To uh, pivot, obviously, to your book then and your work, the book An Introduction to Religious that I'm going to absolutely like massacre this title now, I know it is. Uh, but Introduction to Religious Language Exploring Theolinguistics in Contemporary Context. One, what is theolinguistics? And tell us about, a, bit, a bit about your book. Okay, so theolinguistics basically means language of God or language about God. Um, For some years now, I've been researching the ways that Christianity, but also other organized religion talks about represents women through language. But the more I worked on this, the more I explored it, the more I saw a need to step back and try to work within a larger framework that helped explain the role of different types of language that it's associated with religion in male supremacy, in white supremacy. So I needed a model. I needed a theory. Theolinguistics, language about God, the way that I approach it involves looking at language that people use to talk about what's most sacred to them. So this involves, it involves, of course, language that we associate with organized religion. So Christians have particular language that we use that marks us as Christian. Likewise, other people of other organized religions also have a particular vocabulary, particular, you know, they have different texts that they will reproduce and and read and are important to their practice of doing religion. It's bigger than that. I consider any kind of language that's involved in expressing a person's most deeply felt beliefs about themselves and about the world, I consider that religious. Any kind of language of abuse, for example, is based on assumptions about what human beings are and, and who has value and who doesn't have value. So we use language to mark people as special or every 
everyday common. So I'm interested in that kind of the way that that language is power and it mm. exercises this act of demarcating, of marking out who's special, who's not special, what ideas are we identify with, which ones we don't identify with, uh, what groups we're part of and how we we mark ourselves as members of those groups. And, you know, women, women in particular are important in this discussion because, you know, as we know, the subordination of women, the kind of subjection of women worldwide is a major force. So that's why I wrote the book. I'm now, now that I've kind of developed this model, I'm interested in implementing it more in, in different contexts. As you say, like whatever you hold dear, you'll put language to it. And if that kind of situation's happening, the idea of holding so hard to only male imagery of God, for example. So yeah, I find that that's really interesting. Do you go into those, I take it you go into those kind of ideas? Yeah, because I mean, if God is male, you know, this is a famous quote by, you know, again, a feminist. If God is male, then male is God. The way that we talk about God the way that we talk about the sacred and we gender it can affect how we interact with other human beings, even if it's unconscious. Yeah. There, there are a lot of things that we do. And this is one of the hopes for my book that I hope will, you know, and it's, it's, confronted me with some of my own kind of unconscious bias. These these kind of deeply held beliefs, they trickle out into our human relationships and also our relationships with the planet, our relationship with animals, you know, with all the things around us, we will behave towards them in ways that reflect these kind of these deeply held beliefs with all their kind of complexities and contradictions, things that we've absorbed unconsciously. It's important to confront this and to, and to talk about it openly. It's, I see this as, you know, religious language is it's among the most powerful kinds of language we have available to us. It shapes how we, our everyday life. I, I, it has the potential, you know, I've talked about the potential to harm, but also it has the potential to build up, to empower, to heal. And so that's the kind of flip side of it that, you know, we want to embrace uses of language which are consistent with our values as image bearers of God. So tell us about, about your research about the way that divorce is presented in sermons, because I know you use analyze linguistic devices in your research. So what messages do you think either sort of consciously or subconsciously women are picking up from the language of divorce in sermons? Yeah, well, I, I started my work on sermons. I spent a couple of years looking at sermons because I saw them as an important site where authority is displayed. So, you know, the, the message from the pulpit is something, particularly in conservative Christianity, that's still considered a place where you receive instruction. And people download sermons online, you know, People go and listen to sermons. You know, it's not the only kind of place where we look for information, but it's quite important. It's, yeah. it's still quite sacred. I looked particularly at sermons on divorce as a start because Christians often claim there's less divorce among Christians. So there's a whole narrative around the family and how, you know, within Christianity, we hold it so sacred and we guard it, we protect it. And so we sort of position ourselves as different from the society around us. Like we, because because we have such an honor for marriage, we have less divorce. That's not true. It's not true. I looked at the facts. It is true that younger Christians do not divorce at the same rate as the surrounding groups, but older Christians do divorce. And so I wanted to understand what is contributing to that delay? What are the reasons for that divorce? And how are preachers talking about it? What reasons are they giving for it? Because actually the most common, at least with among statistics in the United States, there's comparative statistics from the United Kingdom about how much abuse is happening in churches. I think it's over 40% of Christians in church-going Christians in the United
United Kingdom report having at least one instance of abuse in a current or previous relationship. Wow. So that's almost almost half of Christians in the United Kingdom. And the most often cited reason for older Christians to divorce in the United States is domestic violence. And it's women who are divorcing. These are things that are not talked about. You know, we sort of think the discourse around divorce is that Christians don't divorce. We have a high view of marriage. We stick together. Marriage is permanent. It's life. So we hold up this ideal, but the reality is quite different. So I wanted to see what's happening from the pulpit. And so I looked in particular at popular sermons on divorce in an archive called Sermon Audio. Most of the sermons that were downloaded on that topic were almost entirely United States. These were just sermons that were downloaded tens of thousands of times. So they had quite a significant reach. The mismatch between reality and what is happening in the pulpit is so stark. Pastors are framing divorce very narrowly and rigidly. First of all, they're setting very strict boundaries around divorce and talking about it almost as something that it's something that happens rarely and for a very small set of circumstances, primarily adultery. So they'll say they talk about divorce in in reference to sexual sin. I guess I should say here that I've done a little bit of looking at particularly how conservative Christian leaders in the United Kingdom talk about divorce, and it's quite similar. Lee, I don't know if you know Church Society. This is the conservative Christian arm of the Church of England. So it's quite a powerful subgroup within the Church of England and the United Kingdom. Yeah. The director of that group is someone called Lee Gattis, who trains new people studying for ordination for the Church of England. So he's involved in seminaries across the United Kingdom, particularly Union. In March of this year, he preached this very, read out this very old Anglican sermon on sexual sin. It's called A Sermon Against Whoredom and Uncleanness. Whoredom. Whoredom. As yeah. in a woman is. <laughs> yes. He mentions divorce. This is why it came up in my searches. I was trying to understand, okay, you know, where's divorce coming up? I mean, it comes up very rarely, but then you get this sudden like blast. And he talks about how the main issue with this whoredom (laughs) is that it's the cause of a great number of divorces, which nowadays are so common. You know, this is a kind of old sermon, but he's bringing it up into the, you know, 2021. And he talks about how that it's violating virgins and widows. And he says, great is the damnation that hangs over the heads of the sexually immoral. We have like this very extreme representation, not only of sexual immorality, I take it seriously as a Christian, but where's the gospel? Mm. Where's where's Jesus Christ in this? What is this narrative about adultery being the kind of unpardonable sin that d- talks about how it brings about illegitimate children and all this kind of goes into this destruction narrative? This is not some kind of fringe, is my point. This is the conservative arm of the Church of England, not some kind of independent body or independent group of Christian churches. The narrative around divorce, I guess I get back to my point here, the narrative around divorce in the United States and from what I've seen here as well, so it's associated with men cheating on their wives, but then also we have this kind of defilement of women that is connected with it as well. No mention really of the main reasons why women seek divorce, which is spousal abuse, which is violence in the home. In my study of these sermons, most of the preachers just don't talk about violence. It's something that they go there. The ones who do, they tend to have no divorce for any reason theology. So 
they're kind of free to go anywhere. They'll say stuff like, it doesn't matter if he beats you. It doesn't matter if he murders. It doesn't matter if he commits incest. You cannot divorce. So they're happy to go to the most extreme places. But most Christian leaders who preach on divorce, at least the ones that I looked at, are reluctant to talk about violence. I think because it's a gray area for them, they're not comfortable saying violence is grounds to leave the home, which is mind boggling. But, Mm. you know, what all this communicates is that the safety of women, women's bodies, our humanity is not under consideration. It's not a kind of part of the of the conversation when it comes to marriage, when it comes to divorce. And I think that's really deplorable, particularly because of how many women I've talked to, friends, family, but also people I don't even know who, who are currently suffering in relationships that are harmful to them. All these preachers, is it all male as well? So you didn't manage to listen to any female ones or was they unavailable or they just not picked up? I definitely would have listened to women preaching about divorce. Um, in the archive that I looked at, it was only men talking about divorce. Right. I mean, that's the nature of the archive. I would like to expand my project. Some of my students over the years have looked for sermons on divorce in kind of more in other kinds of environments where more egalitarian types of church mm. leadership. but. There are not many people, even in those contexts, even talking about divorce. It's something that sort of, it's just, it's, maybe it's not part of the pulpit. Given given the statistics around domestic violence, there's no excuse. We, we yeah. have to talk about this issue and make it clear in this really important aspect of church life. There is no excuse. Divorce is something we should be offering as a kind of liberation for anyone who's in a relationship. They should be encouraged to get out. I guess the other thing I'd say, though, about this, you know, a kind of broader issue that came up as I was looking at these sermons is that, you know, there's a lot of discussion, particularly in conservative Christianity, that the church is being feminized. So people talk about, oh, you know, that the men aren't welcome in church spaces. They say that moved into this kind of feminization of church. But what I discovered in looking at sermons, and this was beyond my corpus of sermons on divorce. I looked at a lot of other sermons. There's quite a bit of evidence to show that preachers are talking to a male audience. They are perceiving a male audience. Mm. Their anecdotes, their references, their pronouns, they are privileging the men of the congregation Mm. and Mm -hmm. sidelining women. So it may be that there are other aspects of the church that are where women are more visible, but not in this very key, important aspect of church life. The women are being made invisible or inaudible essentially, by by the language of sermons. Yes. So it's important that we know this so we can listen out for it and, and, and recognize it when we come across it. Yeah. And this is not just, I mean, this is a reflection of the wider society because most discourse, whether it's the radio, television, is male dominated. Mm-hmm. There's evidence of that. You know, this is an aspect of the patriarchy. If we want to just kind of throw out that <laughs> that word that people think that you may, some people roll their eyes at it, but you know, it's, it's a, it's an, it's a powerful force. Men, particularly white men, tend to occupy places of privilege. And so our language reflects that. I had an an interesting conversation with some people training for the ministry. And they were saying, you know, well, what maybe we need to like be scrutinizing our sermons. But this really starts at the point of relationship. One of the reasons why our language reflects this male privilege is because, first of all, men are dominating positions of authority in the church, even in egalitarian contexts, but also because they're not see- they're seeking out relationships with people who are like them. 
and not making sure that they are surrounding themselves with voices that are not the same as theirs. So it doesn't start, it doesn't start with the sermon. The reason that our language reflects our perspective, it reflects, you know, who we're thinking of. And so how do we affect who we're thinking of? We spend it's it's who we spend time with, it's who we we intentionally engage with, who we want to listen to, who we read. The, it starts at those much earlier points. Well, that leads on to my next question, because when I read your paper on divorce, one of the quotes that you had a couple of times was Al Mola, who is a Southern Baptist. Is he a president of one of the seminaries? I get a bit lost what they do, but he's, and you, you quote him. And I was just wondering in terms of American pastors and theologians, how much influence do you think the US has on the UK church? And, and also, what is that influence? Like, how does it come about? Books, you know, people being educated in the US, online ministries, or kind of more abstract views that I've maybe taken on. I've seen other people, the idea of the US is like this moral example because in quote unquote Christian country, you know, so yeah, if you could speak to that, that would be helpful. Yeah, I'm so glad that you bring that up because I find that UK Christians tend to kind of look down their noses at what they see as the excesses, particularly of white Christian evangelicalism is links with Christian nationalism, with male supremacy, it's celebrity pulpit. A lot of UK Christians that I'm around will say, well, that's not a problem here. You know, fem- we don't really need feminism anymore. For example, we have a more society of equality and that's reflected in our churches. UK Christians can tend to think of themselves as set apart from that. And so then they'll engage with certain American religious leaders like Al Mohler or John Piper. And they'll talk like, oh, we're just just reading the book. We can take the good and filter out the bad. Mm. And I've also seen some of these Christian leaders here dismiss the warnings of American Christians as a result and become kind of complacent about who they're reading, whose work they look to, who they're inviting to speak. Why are you inviting Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood to come and speak at your church? And they're like, oh, you know, but we're taking that we're just kind of filtering out the bad. It's just it's a bit of naivety. To some extent, I want to acknowledge there is a different landscape. There's a a scholar called Andrea Hatcher, who in 2017, she published some research on political and religious identities of British evangelicals. And she found that distinct from the American landscape. Their political identity is not affiliated with one political party. Issues like views on marriage and sexuality, you know, they'll feel strongly about them, but they're not motivators for a culture war in the same terms that you would find in the United States. So Hatcher describes British evangelicals as situated within the cultural mainstream. I think we have to have some caveats about her work because she's interviewing elites, evangelical elites, but it's still, it's useful as a kind of way of saying, okay, now it's not this we're not talking about the same thing here the british landscape christianity is quite different speaking again as someone who grew up in the heart of a movement that responsible for the new rise in the religious far right in the united states a fringe group that scholars have only recently begun to take seriously when it's almost too late. I have witnessed firsthand how extremists infiltrate and influence over time. And that starts in those early stages. When you open a book, you say, okay, you know, I'm just going to dabble a little bit here. I'm going to look, you know, I'm just going to try to filter out the, get the good and and discard the bad. I'm going to invite them to speak, but we're going to take them with a grain of salt. I've been there. (laughs) 
you know, I, I was I was involved in that movement when people were doing that and not taking it seriously. And having lived in the UK now for over 17 years, there's no doubt in my mind the UK is facing a similar set of problems to churches in the United States. So I can cite, for example, the UK has its own celebrity pastors and its own kind of abusive religious leaders. We could talk about the Hillsong influence. 12 cities across England and Scotland are adopting Hillsong. They're not just adopting it, they are plants of Hillsong. Mm. We've seen recent scandals surrounding conservative leaders like Jonathan Fletcher, Ian Campbell in Scotland, John Smith. And in, in the last, I think it was 2013 or a little bit later than that, there was the launch of a Christian seminary in Newcastle associated with a notorious fundamentalist seminary in the United States. This is a kind of a, a fringe detail as well, but I was involved last year with, or, or I witnessed the public exposure of a hate group in the United States called Genevan Commons, one of the members of which has been in The Guardian recently, Doug Wilson. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been several articles in The Guardian about his kind of Christian nationalism, his reconstructionism. That group, that hate group that he was a part of, Genevan Commons, had membership of ministers in the Church of England and across various parts of the United Kingdom. It's still fringe mm-hmm. in the United Kingdom. I have witnessed it firsthand. I mean, I will never forget the day an elder's wife in a UK church asked to have coffee with me. She sat down, she pulled a book out by John MacArthur on marriage. And she asked me what I thought about it because her husband had required her to read it so she could be a better wife. So she could be more silent, more submissive. She said, he's told me that I'm not allowed to express any anger. I mean, I could go on and on. I'm seeing this firsthand. I just think it's important that we don't sit back, be naive about how possible it is for any of these kind of extremist views to become more mainstream in our lifetime. Would you say this is the most important issue affecting Christian women today then? That's a tough one. I mean, I've mentioned already that there's a this direct link between structural dominance mm. over abuse of women and children and poverty. There's a direct link between the way that we, a society dominates women and issues like poverty. And that's not just religious women. That's not just Christian women. That's women worldwide. But within organized religion, within Christian Christianity, we have the added weight of spiritual abuse, of spiritualized misogyny. So this invocation of God to keep women in their place, that's something that kind of transcends our modern time. You know, it's it's a kind of issue that's been around for a long time. It's kind of our, our constant enemy. So silence and shame around sexual abuse, which are, you know, domestic violence around women's bodies, around being female. This is how women are kept under control. And I, I've, again, you know, witnessed in a variety of church contexts in this country and other places that women are also weaponized as tools against each other. And I think that's particularly common among white women. We ha- we have a lot of reflection, critical reflection to do about ourselves, our proximity to white male power and our temptation to betray our sisters of color. We also know that women are more scripture engaged than men. We know black women, black Christians read the Bible more. For me, the most important issue affecting Christian women today is the need for women to know who we are in God through God's mm-hmm. word. I say we because, you know, we've got to work together. There's a real temptation for the enemy of God to get all up in our business, to, to kind of confuse us, to distract us, to sabotage us, to pit us against each other. I gave a talk recently on a book by David 
David Toombs and Jamie Reeves called When Did We See You Naked, looking at stories of violence in the Bible and how women interact with them. I'll never forget this chapter by Gerald West. He reports, women in South Africa said, upon learning about the story of Tamar, if this story is in the Bible, then we will not be silent. That's powerful stuff. The kind of equipping of women to know who we are before God and and the victory that we share in Christ, that's something that we cannot allow anyone to take away from us. So that, that kind of resistance against that structural dominance within the church, but then also even without outside the church is, it's a kind of never ending issue for me. I mean, it's just so powerful, isn't it? Uh, I don't know, but it just, you know, it strikes me that if you talk about, you know, women need to empower themselves by the word, because if men are trying to teach women something that is actually abusive, then no wonder these divorce sermons are not talking about abuse because they don't think it's abuse in the first place. And that is a major issue. So in some ways we have the hard work, like we've always had the harder work as Christian women is to just have to do it off our own backs because no one's coming to help us, you know, in some ways in that respect. Yeah, well, I I consider myself, you know, as a person of privilege because of the color of my skin, but also, you know, I'm I'm an academic. I have a voice. It's It's my responsibility to use it. Mm. to act, of course, to pray, but also to act. Where women go, this is another kind of quote from a a famous feminist, where women go, so goes the church. If we take that seriously, I've seen what can happen. It's a beautiful thing when women come together and resist these kind of efforts to distract us, to, to teach us something that distances us from the love, the wonder, the beauty of God. That I've been there. I've done that. That was my childhood. I'm not going back there. And I feel excited about telling Telling other women about that, the kind of the possibilities that are there mm. outside of that framework of oppression. So leading on from that, what is your image of God? You just mentioned yeah. the beauty, the beauty of God, but there are harsh realities for, for many women. Yeah. So as I say, I grew up among religious extremists. Image of God that they surrounded me with, that they tried to get me to embrace was a God of fury, a God who couldn't, who could barely stand to be among us filthy humans, you know, we're unrighteous worms, we're this kind of image of Jesus, the warrior, wielding this sword of heaven to bring about a new earth. My image of God is a God of the quiet places, a God of small things, finding what is lost. I love the story in 1 Kings 19, where Elijah hears this great and powerful wind that tears the mountains apart and shatters the rocks, but it says the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then came a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And that's when Elijah heard the voice of the Lord. This is the God I know. This is the God who speaks to me in these quiet places, who communes with me in the darkness. It's not this kind of male supremacy, you know, misogynist image of maleness, which you know it betrays men as well. It's not that. It's not that. That's how I think about God. And what do you call God? I struggled for a long time to think about even referring to God using male pronouns and male metaphors. And these dominate the Bible. The religious leaders I knew growing up, they erred on the side of privileging those kind of language, that imagery. Isn't it wonderful that the Bible talks about God in so many different ways, even just not even about gender? You know, God is wonderful. God is counselor. God is peace. Paul writes about you know, he says, pray to the, I pray that you know the God of love and peace. And so for a long time in my life, I focused quite a bit on imagery of God in those ways that were not even gendered at all. That was my safe space. God associated with being in, you know, animals, with being 
nature. Over time, I've been able to reject that negative association. So now I'm confident enough to pray our Father in heaven, you know, following Jesus as example. But I do this as an act of resistance against the image of a father as someone who neglects, who controls, who abuses. So I, I'm able to see God as someone, you know, I think about the story of the prodigal son, someone who saw me from far away, who felt compassion for me, who ran and embraced me and kissed me. You know, that's not hegemonic masculinity. That's gentleness. That's kindness. That's an image of father that's otherworldly. And I love that. And But it's taken me a really long time to get to a place where I can talk in those terms. So I have so much compassion for people who move to different aspects of the Bible um, and adopt those when speaking to, to God. Valerie, thank you so much for your openness today. I could be in conversation with you all night. I don't actually want this to end. <laughs> thank you. I, you've given us loads to think about. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. It's a, it's such a privilege. I'm so I'm so happy to talk about this stuff. It's such important work you're doing. Even just the name of your podcast. I've listened to to quite a few of your episodes now. I I just want to encourage you to carry on. Thank you for your work. Oh, well, thank you. Well, that was a great interview. You two, first one you've done flying solo, isn't it? Yeah. Without the, the nightmare that is Alison hovering over you. Um, get on with done it on your own. Brilliant. Excellent. Great interview. So where should we start? I think we should talk about language. I think we should talk about the language used in sermons, especially the ones that Valerie was listening to, the ones from the US that she was listening to. The language of divorce. She was suggesting that the language of divorce in sermons was very judgmental, all about God's disapproval, you know, the language of sin. And it just makes me wonder, as a woman who's a, a Methodist local preacher, what language would I use in sermons, particularly about divorce? I wonder if it's a male American preacher thing to use language of God's disapproval of women when talking about divorce, because it, it seems to be that these sermons phrase divorce or frame divorce as a result of the women being sexually unfaithful. The women are like on the receiving end of the divorce and the men do the divorcing with good reason because they've committed sin. And that's yeah. how it came across in, in the sermons that Valerie was listening to. It's really interesting, isn't it, on the back of um, Sheila Ray Gregoire's interview, yeah. sex and the pressure that's put on women. I think it, it just adds to the picture of, oh, my goodness, what is going on in society or in church society where sermons on divorce are about there's been sexual sin and that's the reason for divorce. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's a problem, isn't there? Because in the US, divorce rates among Christians are lower than amongst non-religious people. Yet, if the statistics are correct, one in four women are experiencing intimate partner violence. So are Christian women keeping silent then? Are they facing abuse rather than divorce? There's yeah. a chunk of chunk of something mathematical missing in those statistics. That, that really concerns me. Interesting that she said that the older women are yeah. and the younger ones aren't. Speaking as a sort of older woman, I think that's because when you get older, you're less willing to tolerate things that you know are wrong. Whereas yes. when you're younger, you're still trying to please people and get things right. Yeah. 
And I think as well, perhaps with the wisdom of experience, you recognise when someone is, when a preacher perhaps is just being so dogmatic and just saying basically this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. I think as I think as women get older, we start to question this dogmatism and question whether we are being told something that is is true to us and our own feelings and our own experiences. But as well, I was thinking as as a local preacher, I was thinking I really must make sure that that preaching does come from our own experiences. Yes, good idea. Right, so moving on then, what do you think about what she says about not calling herself a feminist? She's not the first person to say that. Yeah, I think it's I do think it's important to acknowledge that feminism is is more than just one aspect. I mean, it's not like so many of these terms, isn't it? It's what you bring to your experience, what you bring to the understanding of the term, and that really really narrows it down. So, uh it's important to acknowledge that that women have very very different experiences as a result of so many factors, culture, upbringing, race, all all into play. I suspect yeah. being a being a, a linguist, I suspect Valerie really didn't want to just come down on one aspect of what it is to be a feminist. Well, I think that's been a it was a great interview and um well worth um listening to and thinking about, especially in context of what's going on in society and uh, all the other things going on. And what struck me was when she, at the beginning of the interview, she said that God has always met her in the quiet. And that really links very well into our next episode with Alison Woolley. So uh, that's worth looking out for everyone in January. We hope to get it done by January. So thanks for listening, everyone, and bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovering God podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe and tell others who you think will be interested. You can follow us on Twitter at Recovering God, Instagram Recovering underscore God or contact us by email at recoveringgodpodcast at gmail.com.